Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just want to make sure that you are aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. The message you are about to watch is week nine. Today, we're celebrating Easter, sharing the story of the gospel and asking the question, how did Jesus make us right with God? If you've missed any messages in this series, we encourage you to go back and listen to the messages you've missed. Once again, thanks for checking out this message here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy this message. When I was in high school, I was given an assignment. The assignment was in a literature class, and the assignment introduced me to an English author by the name of Charles Dickens. The assignment for this particular part of the class was to read a book that he'd written, and the title of the book was called Great Expectations. Anybody else ever have to read that book when you were in high school or middle school, right? We, this, this book, so the teacher assigned it. I didn't know much about it. I did what we all did back then, back in the day. I went to the bookstore to actually buy a real book. And so I went to get this book. And when I went to the bookstore and grabbed my copy off the shelf, I realized something to my astonishment very quickly. And that is that Great Expectations was 544 pages long. My teacher apparently had great expectations <laughs> that I was going to read that book. And I did too. I had great expectations and great intentions that I would read that. So I bought my copy. I took it home. I laid it on my nightstand. And I said, tomorrow I'm going to start reading that book. And you know what happened, right? I walked by the next day and did the same thing. You know what? I'll wait one more day. Tomorrow I'm going to start reading that book. The next day, the next day became a week. Week became two weeks. Two weeks became a month. And then it was time to take the test on this book, Great Expectations, and I'd never even cracked the spine. I hadn't even opened the thing at all. But I had a friend in high school, and he was that friend. You know, I'm sure all of you had a friend like this in high school that's kind of a little bit sinister. You don't really turn your back on them. You don't know what they're going to do. And so this friend of mine, knowing the situation that I was in, shared something with me that I didn't know anything about up until this moment. He introduced me to something called Cliff's Notes. Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? All the English majors in the room just moaned and groaned, but for the rest of us, Cliff's Notes, right? And he showed me a copy of Cliff's Notes that was supposed to summarize the entire story of Great Expectations, and to my joy, it was only 64 pages long. <laughs> So I quickly grabbed Cliff's notes and I read that in preparation for the test. Now, if you're here today and you are an English teacher or an English major, let me just say I have I've learned the error of my ways, all right? I am not today promoting that students in high school, middle school should go out and buy Cliff's notes. Matter of fact, I did not do well on the test. Cliff did not deliver what he promised. <laughs> You say, why are you telling us a story about Cliff's Notes? Well, here's why I'm telling you this. If you're a guest today, we've been for a number of weeks as a church family 
walking through the story of the Bible. We believe convictionally that from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible tells one amazing story, and it is the story of God's love. But you've come on a good weekend. Because we're not going to go over from Genesis all the way to Revelation today. I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version of the story. There's actually a paragraph in Scripture that really does summarize the entire story of the Bible. One theologian and scholar named J.I. Packer, he writes about this paragraph this way. Listen to what he said. He said, these words, that the words we're about to read, contain the key. Not merely to the New Testament, but to the whole Bible, for they crystallize into a phrase the sum and substance of its message. So we're about to read a paragraph from Scripture that summarizes, it crystallizes the entire story of the Bible, which is the story of God's love. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to put these verses on the screen so that you can follow along as I read. Here's what it says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, (coughs) who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's good news already. Amen. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Those verses from Scripture contain for us the components of the whole story of the Bible, and I want to summarize it for you in three simple statements. Here's the first one. You have a purpose. You have a purpose. Here's what that means. Your life matters. You have meaning significance and value. Did you hear it as we read through this text of Scripture? I want you to look at it again, and I want to point out some key words. The Bible here says, Paul is writing, and he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who, say this word out loud, desires. The word desires in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, is a word that means to want strongly or to intend or to purpose. The Bible here is revealing to us something about the purpose of God. Paul's writing and he says, here's what God desires. And look what it says next. He desires this for who? What does this say? Say these two words. All men. The word all means each. It means every individual one. The word men is not the word for the gender of male. It's the word in the Greek New Testament that simply means people or person or or every human being. So what we're reading here is the Bible is telling us about the desire, the purpose of God for every human being. That means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter your culture, your background. It doesn't matter what you've done. The Bible is revealing to us God's purpose for every single human being. And here's what it is. 
that they be saved and come to the, say this word out loud, knowledge of the truth. The word knowledge here is a relational word. It's a word that speaks about knowledge that you come to gain through personal interaction. Here's what the Bible's telling us. That God's purpose for every human being is to enjoy life out of the overflow of a personal relationship with him. God made you for a reason. Let me give it to you in a statement. God made you to know him, to love him, and to be known and loved by him. Doesn't matter who you are. God made you for a relationship with himself. And here's what that means. You will never experience life. Oh, you can live, you can exist, but you'll never experience life as God intended it to be lived apart from a relationship with him. Why? Because that's God's purpose for every one of us. The reason he made us is to know him, to love him, and to be known and loved by him. And everything else in life finds its meaning, its purpose, its significance, and its value when we live all of life out of the overflow of this love relationship with him. Let me try to show you visually what I'm talking about. I'm going to ask uh, Trenton Dorner, our student pastor here at Hope, to come and join me and help me with an illustration this morning. There you go. It took six services for somebody to clap for you coming out. That's awesome. God created us like this. He created us to be in perfect fellowship with him. Nothing between us and God. We were made to live in unity, in fellowship, and in oneness with God. Nothing between us. Together, intimate fellowship. And all the rest of life was to be lived out of the overflow of this relationship between God and man as a human being. Make sense? Now, this is not just true today. This has been true since the very beginning. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 1. Look what the Bible says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the creation of the world in the beginning. When God spoke And everything we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell came into existence. God, sovereign God, with simply his word spoke, and all of the universe and galaxies came into being. And as the crowning achievement of his creation, God on the sixth day made man and woman, and he placed them in the garden for them to live in dominion over everything that he'd made. So let's look at it. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then what does it say next? Say it out loud. God blessed. I think that's interesting. The word blessed in the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Testament was written in, is a word that means to bow. It comes from a root that means to to come low or to approach, to come near. When it's used most of the time in the Old Testament, it's talking about us. 
and how we relate to God. Remember what the psalmist said? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. When it's describing us, it's describing an act of worship where in recognition of the greatness of God, we bring ourselves low. We bow before him, exalting and blessing his name. Wouldn't it have made more sense if the Bible had said God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them, and they blessed God? I mean, they just just been placed into this creation that God spoke into existence. They'd just been created themselves. I'm sure they were filled with awe and wonder at the majesty. Shouldn't it say they bowed and blessed God? But it doesn't say that. It says, God, bless them. What is that talking about? Here's what it's talking about. From the very second human beings were created, God condescended. He brought himself low to bring himself near and manifest his presence. Why? Because God never created us to live apart from the presence of God, but we were to live all of life in the presence of God, enjoying the presence of God, and out of the overflow of fellowship with God. Then look what it says he did next. God blessed them, and he did what? He said to them, That's a good place to say amen. Listen, God didn't have to speak to us. He didn't owe us anything. He's God. And yet the Bible says that he spoke. This word said is a word that means to communicate with words. Meaning that from the very moment we were created as human beings, God God manifested his presence and God began to speak with us. Why? Because he made us to know him and to love him. And to live all of life out of the overflow of our love relationship with him. That's why we were made. We were made with nothing between us. But not only do you have a purpose, here's the second part of the story. You have a problem. And when I say you, I mean us. I'm in the group. You and I have a problem. Because right after Paul writes and says, God desires for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, he then says in verse 5 that we now need and have a mediator. The word mediator comes from a root word that means the middle. And you know what a mediator is. A mediator comes in between two parties that are opposed, and the mediator works to reconcile them, right? To to bring these parties that are opposed back together. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said that God created us with nothing between us so that we could live in fellowship with him. Now you're telling me that there's someone in the middle that's working to reconcile. How did we get separated from God? Let me show you. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Listen what it says. But your iniquities, the word iniquity is one of the Hebrew Old Testament words for sin. It means to twist, to pervert, to distort. It's the picture of taking that which God has said and twisting it and distorting it to meet our own ends. It's another word for sin. But your iniquities, your sins have done what? They've made a separation. Between you and your God and your sins 
have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God made us to know him, to love him, to be known and loved by him, to live in fellowship with him. But here's what happened. We sinned against God. And when we sinned against God, it broke, it severed our ability to have a relationship with God. And that's important because that's the very reason we were created. We were made to know him and live in fellowship with him. And sin destroyed our ability. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. But before you get too down on Adam and Eve, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. That means that every one of us have done exactly what Adam and Eve did. We stepped across God's boundary. You say, not me. Well, you just did. You lied. You're with the rest of us now, right? (laughs) We've all sinned against God. And it's so common in our human experience, we don't think it's that big a deal. But it's our sin. You see, God is so holy that he cannot, he will not be in fellowship with sin. God in his holiness will not fellowship with sin. We in our humanity have sinned against God, and our sin has separated us from God, which robs us of the very reason we were created to live to start with. And as human beings, we know this. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes that eternity is written on our hearts. That's why we all long for something more than just working a job and earning a paycheck and paying the bills and hoping to retire someday. We know there has to be more to life than this. And so here's what we've done. As human beings, we've come up with all of our own ways to try to get us back to God. Like, for example, religion. What is religion? Let me tell you what religion is. Religion is a man-made system of rituals and practices and ceremonies that we perform hoping to earn God's favor. If I'll just do all this church stuff, this religious stuff, then maybe God will accept me. You know the reason a lot of people go to church? I mean, let's just be real honest today. It's Easter, all right? Churches adding services all over town. It's Easter. You know why a lot of people come to church on Easter? You think by participating in this ceremony that somehow you can make God happy with you by coming to church. Or we'll get baptized or we'll take communion or we'll pray. But but don't miss what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, That the separation is so real that he's hidden his face. Meaning this, all of our self-effort in religion, he doesn't even see it. He will not look. All the religion we can muster will not cover. It always falls short of reconciling us back to God. So religion doesn't work. We've come up with other methods. We've tried to use good works for the non-religious crowd we figured out religion won't do the trick religion's condemning more people than anything else so I'm just going to be a good person good works is our attempt to earn favor with God by doing good things here's what we do 
I know I've sinned against God. I know he's not happy with me, so I'm going to go serve at the rescue mission, or I'm going to give some money to the poor, or I'm going to feed the homeless, or I'm going to go visit the nursing home. Why? Because if I can just do enough good stuff, then maybe, just maybe, if I can be good enough, then God will accept me. Here's the problem. Our sins have so separated us from God that he does, <laughs> he's hidden his face. He doesn't see this. He doesn't hear this. Why? Because he's holy. And all of this will not cover our sin. It falls short of reconciling us back to God. So when religion doesn't work and good works doesn't work, then we, we, we pull the last straw of morality. You say, what's different about morality and good works? Good works is our attempt to earn God's favor by doing good things. Morality is our attempt to earn God's favor by not doing bad things. So here's what we say. Yeah, God, I know I've blown it, but I'm going to turn over a new leaf today. I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm not going to cheat anymore. I'm not going to be dishonest anymore. From this day forward, I'm a new man. Let me ask you a question. How, how's that working out for you? <laughs> How many times have you flipped that leaf over to only discover it's not sufficient to cut? Listen, I can be as good and as moral from this day forward as I can possibly try to be, and it will not change the fact that I've already sinned against God, and my sin against God has broken my relationship with Him, and I can't get to Him on my own. And to make matters worse, listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is, say this out loud, death. What's a wage? You know what a wage is. A wage is something that you earn, right? If you work a job where you make $10 an hour and you work 40 hours this week, you earned $400, right? It's yours. It belongs to you. You deserve it, right? Why? Because you worked for it. You earned it. It's your wage. The Bible says because we've all sinned against God, we've earned something. It's ours. It belongs to us. Let's take it a step further. We deserve it. Meaning this, if I get what I deserve because of my sin, I will die. I've earned death, not just physical death, but if I die in my sin apart from God, I die for eternity separated from God. That's what I deserve because of my sin. And there's nothing I can do to cover that. All the stuff we've tried falls short. But here's the good news of Easter. God loved you and me so much that God has a plan to deal with our sin. He has a plan. Let me read it to you. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Look what he says. For there's one God. And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. Here's what the story of the Bible says. God made you and me for a reason. He made us to know him, to love him, to be known and loved by him, and to live all of life out of the overflow of a relationship with God. Apart from a relationship with him, we'll never know meaning, purpose, value. We won't have eternity in heaven. He made us for that reason, but we sinned against God. We rejected God. 
We did our own thing, and our sin broke our relationship with God. It separated us from God, and there's nothing we can do to change that. But listen to me. God so loved us that he sent his glorious son, Jesus. And Jesus came into this world to stand in the middle and to do for us what we could not do on our own, to reconcile us back to the Father. You say, how did Jesus make us right with God? Well, the Bible says he gave himself. Here's what happened. God was on one side and man was on the other. Our sin separated us from this holy God. There was nothing we could do to change it. So God sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus, God, eternal God, took on humanity. Here's what that means. God became a man. The one that spoke all of time into existence entered time. And when he entered time, he came as a human being and Jesus lived a sinless life. He did what you and I couldn't do. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God, making him a spotless sacrifice. And Jesus took his body, his sinless, holy body, and he laid it on a cross. Listen, they did not take his life from him. The scripture says he gave himself for us. And on the cross, let me tell you what happened on the cross. Jesus took all of your sin, and Jesus took all of my sin. Every thought, every word, every deed, every action, every desire, every emotion, God took it all. And on the cross, Jesus died for our sin. You say, why did he have to die? Remember what we said. The wages of sin is what? We owed a debt we could not pay. So Jesus came and paid a debt he did not owe. He offered himself as a substitute. On the cross, all of our sin, he took on himself. And he literally, the Bible says, became sin for us. And he died paying the price. But if all he did was die, then we still have no hope. But the reason we're in this room today is he did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sins so that now you and I, through Christ, can be reconciled back to God. That is the story of the Bible. But I don't want you to miss this. Go back to that First Timothy passage again. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't miss this. That phrase, desires all men to be saved, in the Greek language is in the passive voice. You see, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. When something in the Bible is in the passive voice, the subject is not doing the action. The subject is receiving the action, meaning this. Salvation is not something you and I do. We cannot, through religion, good works, or morality, save ourselves. Salvation is all a work of God. It's what God has done in Christ for us. But he said, and come to the knowledge of the truth. Come is in the active voice, meaning the subject is doing the action. Here's what that means. 
Everything that needed to be done for you and I to be saved has already been done in Jesus. Now here's all you have to do. By faith, come to him. That's it. We only read the first half of the verse. Let me show it to you. Look what it says. The wages of sin is what? Death. Oh, I love the second half. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord as he reconciles us back to the Father. So here's the question. Where are you? Are you over here separated from God because of your sin? Trying to do it on your own? Or have you by faith come to Jesus to be saved?